My name is Travis Whitehead, and as I said a, a little while ago this morning, um, I work for the Acts 29 um, Church Planting Network. Uh, I also uh, serve with the Redeemer Church of Dubai, uh, where I live with my family, uh, my wife, and two kids who are, um, I've just been informed, have been losing their minds all day, and so it's an exciting time back home for my wife. and. Uh, what I do with Acts 29 is uh, for the past seven years, I've been overseeing a process called uh, assessment. And so this process is um, basically I get to talk with pastors from across African context, Middle Eastern context, Asian context, and basically just hear what they are doing, hear about their ministry, hear about their churches, hear about where they live, the people that are around them. And, and the goal is to um, provide some meaningful feedback for those pastors. Um, in years past, I've worked with churches, uh, I've worked on staff at churches to train pastors and to uh, equip church planters to go out and plant. And now with uh, Redeemer Church of Dubai, I'm helping to kind of create some systems and structures, the real fun stuff of ministry uh, for their membership process. And so basically, over the years, um, I have had just a unique ministry to interact with pastors and aspiring pastors from all over the world. <clears throat> and it's been, uh, it's been interesting. It's been, uh, it's been exciting. I've heard a lot of stories. I've been encouraged. Um, there's times I've been concerned, um, but I have been uh, overall just excited to hear about how uh, Christ Church is moving throughout the world, is moving in places you wouldn't expect it to be moving in, and it is moving through, uh, as our brother just said, through the proclamation of the gospel. Um, at the same time, over the years, what I've seen is uh, what you might call, um, I've seen from pastors what you might call a learned accounting of others' beliefs. Um, so that I see pastors who uh, they don't particularly have convictions, they don't particularly have uh, really strong beliefs about what Scripture says, but they've heard from someone else or they've read from someone else, say, this is, this is the right thing. And so if someone asks them, then what they respond with is the correct answer, but it's not a conviction that's coming from their heart or moving who they are as disciples. And this is dangerous because as students, as people that are trying to learn Scripture, as people that are trying to know God more, it's dangerous because we can learn facts about God, we can learn true statements about God, but never know Him. And as preachers, we can study the Word, but never let it pierce our hearts. And so what we become is performers. We become actors. It's dangerous. And so what I wanted us to do today is I wanted to take us through some, some deep theology. And so specifically on the communicable attributes of God. And we'll, we'll talk about what that means in just a second. But I wanted to take us through some deep theology, not so that you have some definitions to write down, um, but so that we can think together deeply about what it would mean to believe and apply this, these theologies to our life and to our ministry. Okay, so that's what we'll do. The communicable aspects of God, the com <clears throat> communicable attributes of God are the aspects of God that are seen in man 
who is made in God's image. So there, there, there are aspects of God's character or his being that we are able to understand because they're also seen in finite ways in you and me who are made in God's image. So that's what I mean when I say communicable, as, uh, communicable attributes of God. Don't worry about the big titles for these, okay? Let, we're going to break them down and we're going to get to the minutia of it. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of give you a list of these, these attributes. And then we'll, like I said, then we'll walk through what does it mean. So the first one we want to look at is omniscience. And this is God's knowledge. And just to give you a very quick uh, definition of this, omniscience means that God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. God's knowledge is not limited by creation. He does not and cannot learn. So omniscience, God knows everything. Just simply, he knows everything. He knows everything that is, he knows everything that could be. Grudem, uh, Wayne Grudem is a theologian and, and in his book, uh, Systematic Theology, he describes omniscience, God's knowledge, in this way. <clears throat> omniscience is God's knowledge. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible. God's knowledge is not limited by creation, it does not and cannot learn. God is not constantly learning new things. He knows all things. His knowledge is not his knowledge is infinite and it is complete now. So this means he's not setting creation into orbit. He didn't set creation. He didn't put you down here and spin it off and say, well, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder how things are going to go for this guy. He knows what will happen completely. So let's break this down into two parts. Okay. God knows all things actual. In other words, God knows all things that exist and all things that happen. Guys, and my apology for my accent, it comes out when I'm nervous and stressed, so bear with me. Here's some text. God knows all things actual. 1 John 3.20 For God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Hebrews 4.13 Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eye of him to whom we must give account. That's pretty unsettling. <laughs> right? <laughs> On one hand, you're thinking, man, it's, it's awesome. God knows everything. That's pretty cool. That's, that's, that's pretty awesome. And at the same time, you think, oh, but he knows everything. He knows these things I don't want him to know about. Here's another text, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. And you can jot these down if you'd like. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. One last one, Matthew 6, 8. Matthew 6, 8. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, so God knows, God knows all things actual. Two, God knows all things possible, things that might happen but do not actually come to pass. Okay, so he knows not just the things that are, but the things that could be. And this is important for, we'll get into it a little bit later, but let's, let's look at this. 
God knows all things that are in existence. He also knows all things that are possible, things that might happen that don't actually happen. Matthew eleven twenty one. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So, so think about this statement for a second. When God makes statements like this in Scripture, He's not trying to shame like an exasperated parent. He's not saying, well, I bet Tyre and Sidon would have really appreciated this. He's making a proclamation of fact. If Tyre, if Sidon had heard, had seen the works that Chorazin and Bethsaida are seeing, they would have repented. This is a statement of fact. Okay, so God's all-knowing. You and I serve God who's all-knowing. How does that actually encourage me? How does that lead me to worship and stir up my affections for Him? And I think there's a couple ways that we can answer this, that we can respond to that question. The first is seen in Peter's denial of Christ. And so you, you see Peter, you see in John chapter 13, verse 38, Jesus is speaking to Peter right before Peter betrays him. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Now, this is not a premonition that Jesus has. Jesus is not looking at Peter's character or looking at Peter's history or looking at kind of the quirks of his personality and saying, I, this is going to happen because I, I know who you are and this is just your character. Jesus is saying, this will happen and I know because I know all things. He has full knowledge of what's going to come to pass. And if you look at that in, the, in the, the context of the text, the context of the story to that point, it should be terrifying if you're considering the church. Because just before this, Christ had said to Peter, hey, your confession, this confession, and, and, and on this confession itself, I'm going to build my church. And so Peter's going to confess and Christ's going to build his church, but also Peter's going to deny him. Three times in one night. Peter's given this beautiful promise. And then Jesus says, Peter, you're going, to you're going to deny me three times. You're going to cower away in fear and abandon me. Now, here's why that's encouraging. God knows every detail of your life. He knows your greatest successes. He knows your most horrendous failures. He knows every shadow of your being, every hidden thing. He knows every detail of your thought life, your desires, your motivations, your love, your lack of love. He knows your limitations. He knows everything about you. He knows when your worship is fake. He knows when you're putting on a show of spirituality in order to gain the approval and the applause of others. He knows everything, and He still pursues you relentlessly. Right now, today, Jesus knows all of the wicked, shameful things in your past, and He knows all of the ways that you're going to, to, to abandon Him in the future, that you're going to let Him down in the future. He knows all of it, completely, and He still loves you. It doesn't change. His knowledge is complete. He's not going to come on some new knowledge and say, oh, 
Well, things were great until I figured this out about you and now I'm gone. He knows you now and he loves you. He knew, he knows, and he laid down his life for you so that you might be called a child of God. Here's another example. Adam in the garden. So go all the way back to Genesis 3 and the way God deals with Adam and Eve. You see how this plays out with his full knowledge. And so if you remember Genesis 1 through 3, God has made creation. Creation is perfect in its order and in its structure. And he's put Adam and Eve in the garden and he's given them a purpose. He's given them a calling and he is fellowshipping with them. And then they sin and they fracture all of this. And most importantly, they fracture their fellowship with God. And what is the first thing that they do when they sin? What's the first thing they do? They hide. They jump in the bushes, right? They hear God walking through the garden and, and they jump in a bush. That's what they do. Now, if you don't understand and you don't really believe and, and, and have this convictional faith in God's omniscience, the full impact of this story gets lost because as God's walking through the garden and calling out to them, hey, where are you? He's not actually curious where they are. He's not trying to figure out where they are. He's not confused. Instead, what he's doing is he's declaring to Adam and Eve in those moments, I know where you're at. I know where you're at. I know what you've done. You can't hide from me, but I want you to know that you don't need to hide from me. This is true for you, for those of you who are in Christ. He knows everything you've done. He knows everything that you want to do. And, he, and every time he comes to you and he says, where are you? He's not asking what's happened. He's not asking where you're at because he doesn't know when, when you've sinned. He's giving you this opportunity to come out, confess, repent. You look at that and you see the way he cares for Adam and Eve in the midst of his full knowledge of their absolute betrayal, of their absolute destruction of his creation. He doesn't storm into the garden and throw them out from their hiding place. He doesn't strike them dead the moment they taste the apple, the moment they taste that fruit. He invites them to come out from their hiding and he covers their shame. If God was not omniscient, how would that affect the way you see him and others? How would it affect the worship, your worship of God and the way you treat other people? If you, if you don't believe that God knows all things, what happens is, is you believe you believe the gospel in part, and, and you also model and teach the gospel in part. You behave like Adam and Eve. And so if you don't believe that God knows all things, when, when you falter, when you sin, your immediate reaction is to say, yeah, I know you love me, I know you've sent Jesus to die in my place, but man, if you found out about the real me, you're gonna be disappointed. You accept me now, but once you find out this thing I've done, you're gonna see I'm not acceptable. And that moves us into this place where, where when we sin, our response is to say, well, I've just, gotta, I've just gotta get this right and then I can come back to praying. I've just gotta get this right and then I can worship in full. I've just gotta, get, I've just gotta work some stuff out in my life. I've gotta read some more books or I've gotta spend some time in penance. But here's the good news. God already knows that you're not pursuable or acceptable, but his kindness overwhelms that fact. 
His pursuit of you is not based on your merit. He knows everything about you. And so all his knowledge does is explode in us a belief and a trust in his kindness. You know everything about me and you love me endlessly. There are consequences for not believing this. There are consequences for not kind of holding on to this, this, this belief that God knows all things. If we believe that God's knowledge is limited, we hide from him. And brothers, you don't have to hide your weakness. You don't have to hide away when you've failed. You don't have to hide away when you've sinned. You don't have to hide away when you have moments of doubt. And look, when you do, when you want to present yourself as never wavering, you are the perfect picture and you have got it all down and you have all of the answers and you have never made a mistake in your life. When you present yourself in that way, that you are always the hero of the story and your actions are always the hero of the story rather than Christ coming in to save you. When you present yourself in that way, what you do is, teacher, what you do is you teach your people something about God, something about God. You teach your people something about who God is and what the gospel does, and you give, this, you give them this incomplete picture of the fullness of the gospel. You give them this incomplete picture of who God is as Father, as Creator, and that He is someone that we need to hide from. He is someone that we need to keep, keep our mistakes away from. And that creates in our churches people that are disfigured followers of Christ. It creates in our churches people that believe, well, I've messed up, I've done all these things wrong, I guess this just isn't for me. This is too hard. People that can't rely on the fullness of Christ because they believe they've got to hide things from God. Okay, God knows all things. The second one, om omnisapience. Omnisapience. God's wisdom. Just, just write God's wisdom. God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. God is wise. He is all wise. He knows the best thing to do. He knows the best way to do it. Uh, A.W. Tozer describes omnisapience as this. Wisdom is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work towards predestined goals with flawless precision. <clears throat> So think about your life. Uh, I think of my life and I think of uh, right now I have a son who is 15 months old and he was born with a traumatic brain injury. So think of, think of maybe something in your life, that thing that kind of pops out when you hear that God has all the best plans, he has all the best goals, and he has all the best means to accomplish those goals. And there might be something that's kind of popping up in your head is like, well, I don't know, I don't know, this thing has happened. For me, it's my son. Scripture is telling us that God always chooses the best goals and the best means for those goals. So 
there is an end and that it is the best possible end for you. And there are means that you are brought to that end and those are the best possible means. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. Let me give you a couple texts and let's talk about what this means. Romans 16, 27. He is the only wise God. <clears throat> Job 12, 13. With him are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Psalm 104, 24. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. I want to highlight the word manifold there because manifold means that there is not one piece of information or one single detail that God does not have perfect wisdom in. He's saying you have complete wisdom in all things. Your wisdom is all-encompassing. So you'd never look at God and say, I know you know everything about everything, but you just don't understand my situation. You don't understand the, the context here. God knows every angle of every situation and everything that's happened to you and everything that hasn't, and He has thought it out perfectly in His wisdom. How manifold are your works in wisdom have you made them all? The earth is full of your creatures. Now, as I think about that with my son, my wife and I have wrestled with this. We've wrestled with this. And over, over the months and over weeks, what, what we've come to find is that God has given us this son because we can love him in a way that he would not be loved otherwise. My, when, when we found out that my son was, um, was gonna have this condition, we were in the United States and our doctor said, our doctor said, well, you're past the time that this is legal, but we can figure out a way for, for, for you to terminate this, this pregnancy. And we said, well, wh well, why would we do that? It's our son, right? Why would we do that? It's our son. And if you look at, like, we've tried to find some stats. We've tried to find some information about his condition so we could understand, okay, what does it look like for him? What, like, what do we need to prepare for? And we can't find any stats because so many people in the United States kill their son, kill their child before they're born when they find out about this reality. My son's 15 months old now. He's got no teeth. He's sitting up on his own and he's the happiest kid I've ever seen in my life. And God has given him to us so that we could care for him. He has blessed, he has blessed our son through giving him parents that would sacrifice and lay down their life for him. Now, almost every time God's wisdom is discussed in the scriptures, it's coupled with God's om omnipotence, his omnipotence, his power. We discuss God's wisdom, discuss God's power. <clears throat> omnipotence simply means this. God is able to do all of his holy will. God is able to do everything he wants to do. He is powerful to do whatever he sets out to do. God is perfectly able to accomplish every detail of his plans and desires, implementing his perfect knowledge and wisdom. So why are these two so often coupled together? Well, well more often than not, it's because when we are thinking about or talking about God's wisdom and power, it, it's comes from a place of questioning and confusing and confusion. So often we are contemplating God's wisdom 
when we are contemplating God's wisdom, more often than not, it's what's happening? Why, why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to happen? It's a lot harder for us to contemplate God's, God's wisdom when things are going great. Like that, that, a lot of times that seems to pass us by. Maybe not always, maybe you're holier than I am, but often when things are going really good, I'm just like, man, things are going good. I don't think about it. But it's in those hard times. God, what are you doing? If we look at Job, if you're familiar with the story of Job, um, the quick recap, um, Job is a very successful, uh, he's, a very, um, he's a very blessed man. And uh, then uh, he is not. Everything is taken from him. His family dies. His source of income dries up. His wife tells him, hey, you should just go ahead and die. He's got friends that are coming around him saying, hey, what'd you do? This is pretty bad. This is pretty bad. What'd you do? He's got friends that are just not great friends for him. And so you look through the, bo the book of Job and this man who has everything taken away from him. And for a while, it seems like he is processing these things in a kind of a stoic manner. And he's just receiving them. And he is... He's not giving in to the, the poor counsel of his friends or his wife to curse God or to figure out what did you do to, to, to offend him. And then towards the end of the book, something switches and he starts to question. He starts to question God's wisdom and his plan. And in Job 38, God begins to respond. So Job 38, 1 through 13. Let me just read this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this who darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you, Job? commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken from it we'll stop there because the next four chapters are that just kind of repeated in finite wisdom job says look this isn't fair this doesn't make sense God, maybe you're not as wise, maybe you're not as all-knowing as we've been saying and singing about. And then God comes in and says, hey, Job, I can't really remember. Were you around when I made lightning? I'm, I'm thinking, and I just don't remember that you were there when I spoke the sea into existence and told it how far it could come. God's not, God's pulling Job in to remind him, you think you have the full scope of wisdom and you don't. I do. And not only am I wise, but I am powerful to do the things that I want to do. Now look, in Job's case, he is restored. 
He is restored, but his family still died. He still suffered immensely. Here's why these things are so fundamental to confidence in God. And I, I mentioned that Job suffered because I don't want you to mistake that because Job came around and got a talking to, that he received the benefit. And so if we just get it right, then our suffering will end because we're not promised that. We're promised eternity. What if God were all wise, but not all powerful? What if he were all powerful, but not all wise? So if God were all wise, but not all powerful, we should pity him. Because he would have the best ideas and couldn't do anything about it. He would have the best plan, but it wouldn't really matter. If God has all the wisdom but lacks the power, he's, he's like some child. He's like a gifted child that has great ideas for how the family should run, but he, he has no authority, no power to set the budget. He has no authority and no power to determine where the family should live or what the father should do for a job or, or how the kids should be cared for. If God is all wise but not all powerful, we can't be confident in his words. Consequently, if he were all powerful but not all wise, we should be terrified of him. Because he would not be governed by morality. He wouldn't be governed by what is morally pure. If God had all the power but none of the wisdom, he actually becomes that 13-year-old boy who has somehow been given dictator status, right? He's somehow been given power over this family. And so there's lots of candy in the budget, but there's not much bread, right? He becomes a tyrant squashing bugs in the backyard because he can and because he thinks it's funny. But God is both all-powerful and all-wise, and so we can rest with the knowledge of who He is, even if we suffer in the moments, because we are looking for what we've been promised in eternity. We can have confidence during those times of pain and suffering that He has not abandoned us. He is not inflicting on us torment due to incompetency or impotency. He's, om he, he's omnisapient, He's omnipotent, He's all-wise, He's all-powerful. He's working all things to his good and perfect plan. Okay. God is righteous and merciful. And this is where we're going to end. God is righteous and merciful. We'll talk about them in two components. So righteousness first. God is righteous. God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. God always acts in accordance with what is right. Deuteronomy 32.4 All his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and right is he. Genesis 18.25 Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Isaiah 45, 19, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. 
God is perfectly righteous, and, and here's what that, that means. God is a God of justice. And he is the only one who can properly and perfectly declare what is just and what is not. And so those of us who come against his righteousness will be dealt with justly. God is righteous, and therefore, he must treat people according to their sin. Because God is the standard of right, to go outside of that standard demands, demands a reaction, it demands a punishment. This is what we call justice. But at the same time, God is merciful. Merciful, God is good to those in misery and distress. 2 Samuel 24, 14, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. Matthew 9, 35 through 36. <clears throat> Matthew 9, 35 through 36. Jesus went throughout all the cities and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. <clears throat> when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus. He's going from town to town. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's healing the sick. He's curing afflictions. And why? Because he sees the people in their misery and distress, and he has compassion for them. Friends, there's no greater misery or distress than to be separated from God by sin. And so God has mercy and sends Jesus to cure our iniquities. And so the question should naturally be, how can God be both righteous and merciful? How can he be the standard of right that, and because he is righteous, he, anything against that would demand justice, but at the same time, see people in their suffering and be merciful to them. See people in sin and be merciful to them. The answer is in Romans 3, 23 through 26. Romans 3, 23 through 26, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So because God is both righteous and merciful, he places the punishment of sin onto Jesus. He shows his righteousness and mercy on the cross. For harassed and helpless people like you and me are justified before him. American people uh, love the idea of justice. We love it. We watch TV shows about it. We read books about it. We tell stories about it. We consume justice as an entertainment. Social media, if you're on, if you're on any social media with an American, it's essentially become a platform to argue about the implementation of justice. We are kind of consumed with that idea. We love justice but we love it for other people. For us, we want mercy. So even when we think about the gospel, 
This is true more often than we would like to admit. Look, some of you are going to leave this room where you've celebrated the mercy that we've been shown in Jesus and the hope that we have in Christ, and you're going to go home and someone is going to insult you or someone's going to slight you or someone's going to do something against you, and you are going to pray that that guy gets what he deserves. You're gonna want it to happen. Oh, it's coming. You're gonna get it. My wife last week was yelled at by a man on the street in Dubai. And he said, some pretty, he said some pretty awful things to her. I don't want mercy for that man. I want justice. But the gospel destroys that paradigm. It's justice and mercy walking hand in hand. The gospel says that you, you deserve justice. You deserve wrath. You deserve punishment. And God was merciful on you. And he was just because he placed that onto Christ. And here's how that applies to you today. Do you have eyes to see other people in the same way Jesus sees you? We love justice. We wanna see it done. But when Jesus looks at the people in Matthew 9, 35 through 36, he sees differently than we do. He has compassion. He sees helpless sheep without a shepherd. Is that the way that you view the lost? Is that the way that you, that you view your, Muslims, your Muslim neighbors? Jesus never has to be coerced into becoming merciful. He's not waiting to see if someone has made significant life changes so he knows that they're serious about it this time and worthy of his mercy. The mercy of Christ is mercy because you don't deserve it. You deserve justice, you get mercy. Christians know that we were dead in our sins. We weren't sick, we weren't doing bad, we were dead, we were destined for hell, but Christ showed his great love for us in this, that while we were sinners, he died for us. That should radically change the way that we interact with people on a daily basis. You were worthy of nothing but God's righteous judgment. I was worthy of nothing but God's righteous, righteous judgment. Instead, he made me a son. Instead, he brought you into his kingdom. The righteousness of God is seen in Jesus and the mercy of God is seen in you. God's righteousness is seen on the cross, your sins paid for. God's mercy is offered to you on the cross. Let's wrap this up. One more text, Titus 3, four through seven. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says, remember, Paul says in Titus 3, 4 through 7, Paul says, remember who you were. Remember the stark, horrifying reality of it. You're foolish, disobedient men. You were, you were led by your own passions. You were passing your days in ignorance and malice and hatred. Remember all of it and then remember that God saved you and gave you a new hope. 
You were lost and dying, and then his goodness and loving kindness appeared. It comes of his own volition. It took on flesh. It left heaven and condescended to us, lived among us, suffered like us, and died for us in the person of Jesus. He saved you. Not according to your righteous works, not, not because you walked down an aisle, not because of how many Bible verses you memorized or how much theology you know, or how well you lead his people and preach on a Sunday. Not because you perform the right series of spiritual exercises like some salvation secret code, but according to his mercy. Jesus Christ took all of your filth and laid it on himself, went to the cross, died in your place and three days later rose to life and left your guilt and shame in that grave where it lies now. And somehow the good news gets better because God not only does God save you from sin, he saves you to an inheritance. His mercy gives you, his mercy doesn't just save you from, it saves you to this inheritance that you don't just get your slate, slate wiped clean and set you on your way. He brings you into his family. He makes you his child and an heir of eternity, all according to his mercy. And if you believe this, it does a few things. We talked about it earlier that it changes the way you respond to your own sin. So we don't hide, we don't make offerings or pay a penance. We are able to confess and rejoice in our salvation. When we sin, we're able to look to the cross and remember the mercy that we have now. It changes the way we respond to our own sin. Our prayers of confession are reminders to our own heart of the hope we have in Christ. They're a practice of belief. And so in James 5, when he says, confess your sins to one another, what he's saying is practice believing what you believe. That's what confession is. It's a practice of belief. Secondly, if we believe this, it changes the way you call other people to believe. Namely, that it gives you an urgency. That this mercy that I have received is available to anyone who would believe it. It's available to the person who's wronged me to the, per the person that seems too far gone and helpless and hopeless. It's available to the neighbor who hates me. Are you merciful? Is the mercy that you've received moving you to proclaim the gospel to others around you in your daily life? Is it something that you hold tightly and share only with those who would walk in to hear you preach behind a pulpit? Is it the thing that you preach from the pulpit? Uh, on the drive up here, I saw sign after sign after sign that said, Jesus is the answer. And I was thinking, what is the question? The question is this, how can you be reconciled to God? Jesus, faith in Christ. Are you modeling this belief in your own life for your people? I think um, often when I, when I have a chance to speak with, with brothers and, and pastors that from different parts of the world, a lot of times what people will come up to me and ask 
afterwards, particularly with how, how they'll say, hey, you're in Dubai, are many Christians, are many people become Christians in Dubai? And I say, yes. Many people are becoming Christians all over the world in places you would never believe. <clears throat> and they say, they say, how? How's that happening? And what I've found is typically they're not really motivated to hear, well, we preach, the, we, we proclaim the gospel and, and, and Christ saves people. What they're really motivated to hear is, the, is, is some methodology is to prove the rightness of their own theology against their neighbor. It's, it's a desire to be vindicated with no real concern for the men and women who are far from God. So they want, to, they want to know, hey, what's the argument I can use about this thing? And I'm just, it doesn't, you have the best argument ever. It doesn't matter. If Christ saves people, it's according to his mercy because he chooses to. And if that's true, then that means that we can share it with anyone. Amen. Confident that Christ is merciful and wants to save them more than we do. Are you motivated by the mercy you have experienced? Now look, if the answer for that is no, let me say, you have hope in Christ. If you've faltered in these things in your ministry or in kind of your daily life, Christ has paid, Christ has paid the price for that. Christ has reconciled you to God. So if you're in Christ, trust in it, believe in it and allow it to transform you. Scripture and theology and these things, they're not, they're not for a notebook. They're for war. They're for your daily life. As you engage with the community around you, as you engage in spiritual warfare in your own heart and your family, is the knowledge of who God is. It's the knowledge of what the gospel is. Is that moving you and changing you, or is it just some statistics that you can rattle off? If it's the latter, there's hope in Christ for you today. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, often uh, I am left wanting for Yeah, I'm just left wanting for the opportunities you give me to share the gospel. I'm left wanting for the mistakes that I've made and being short with, uh, with someone I see in a restaurant who, who bears your image and is separated from you by sin. God, I pray that you would move us as leaders in the church to model what it looks like to live lives of mercy, to model what it looks like to live lives who not just know things about you, but know you, and from that are, are motivated and moved and changed from it so that we are engaging the people around us with the hope that we have. God, forgive us when we fail you in this. God, remind us that when we, that when we fail you in this, that you knew it was going to happen and you have not abandoned us. God, that you are pursuing us right now and that even right now Christ is, Christ is intervening for us at your right hand. God, we pray for uh, the people in these churches that are represented by these men. God, would you, save, would you save the lost? Would you encourage those who are in 
seasons of doubt and suffering. God, would you equip the church to care well for one another? God, we ask all these things, and we also ask that you would just align our hearts with yours in the places where we are lacking. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.